0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Salem Investigating the Witch Trials. Brought to you by History Extra. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is our final episode, episode nine. So often when people have spoken about the Salem Witch Trials, they've talked about a craze, an epidemic of irrationality unleashed by a group of hysterical girls. Because people have found events at Salem so hard to understand, they've often rooted around for an easy solution, a quick fix explanation for people having fits or experiencing visions. Let me give you an example of one of these quick fix ideas that the villagers were suffering from ergot poisoning. They'd ingested gone-off rye, affected with a fungus which had hallucinogenic properties. Other theories also suggest there could be a diagnosable issue to blame, an outbreak of Lyme disease, perhaps, or an autoimmune disease. The historians I spoke to were quick to caution against investing too much in simple solutions like this. This came as no surprise, But I think that their arguments about why we shouldn't fall for easy explanations throw up some interesting insights. Insights that cut to the heart of the issue of what was really behind the Salem Witch Trials. Let's hear from Professor Marion Gibson first. She explained why theories like ergot poisoning just don't make the grade problem
1: is that it really can't explain why it takes the the forms that it does you know why would you accuse people of witchcraft um in that setting you wouldn't necessarily unless you already had a culture which expected to find witches a religious explanation seems a lot more likely there i don't really believe that ergot poisoning is the source of all of these problems i think it's more to do with cultural expectations with people imagining the devil is trying to get into the community rather than hallucinogenic substances
0: the idea that we should stop looking for simple explanations for seemingly mad behavior is something that historian owen davies reiterated
2: i'm very wary of any attempts at retrospective diagnoses Uh, one because it's predicated in the idea that there must be something wrong with those people terms like hysteria and craze you know explicitly say they're mad almost, you know, to believe in that. And why why were they mad? You know, that's the wrong starting point. They weren't mad at all. Everything they talked about made sense to them and in the culture that they lived in. But the idea that you talk about the whole episode and say that could only have happened because people had ingested ergot, you know, uh, poisoning or caught Lyme's disease or whatever. That's, to be honest, lacking understanding of the nature of witchcraft belief.
0: And so we're back to this point that I keep returning to. That if we really look at the historical background, as we have done through this series, we can see that the outbreak at Salem wasn't something irrational and unexplainable. And as such, it can't be explained away by one simple solution. Simple solutions may be satisfying, but as always with history... The reality is a melting pot of contributing factors. Throughout this series, we've spoken about a range of factors that Salemites felt threatened their very existence, from Native American attacks and the grim difficulties of settler life to the religious and political tensions that were bubbling away in New England. And I think it's fair to say that there was some kind of existential fear underlying everything that occurred. Historian Kathleen Brown. So... I think that the witchcraft outbreak at Salem in
3: 1692 um, is an expression of fear about the future of a settlement that, at least initially, had a very strong religious purpose.
0: And according to Kathleen, if we understand this underlying sense of existential dread, it can help us make sense of how accusations emerged and who first raised them. So if this is a society-wide
3: crisis of, you know, fear and belief and faith in ruling powers, um, and even faith in one's own kind of safety and future in this place, um, why are the people who are giving voice to this young people, and why are they girls and young women, there is still a question, you know, why does a, a cohort of young people who ordinarily have no place in the public eye suddenly become the directors of the action? The truth-tellers seem to come from spaces where ordinarily nothing they say would be given credence. Um, so I don't know if that's it's appropriate to think of it as a world-turned-upside-down model or as um, vulnerable people who feel especially vulnerable to a social order gone awry um, because they have so little agency, being the ones most prompted to give voice to that, to express it and speak out about it. Young people, especially teenage girls and young women, become the mouthpieces of this fear, in part because of the important role women played in Puritan society, in reproducing that society, not only in the prolific production of children for which um, that 17th century colonial period is known, um, but also the reproduction of its values. And so I think we're getting the population of accusers who feel most uncertain, most um, vulnerable, giving voice to the larger fears and uncertainties of an entire society.
0: This idea of a pressurised situation that found its outlet in the young and powerless is something that Marion Gibson also expressed to me. She suggests that the strange fits and behaviours that sparked this all off from Reverend Parris' daughter and niece, Betty and Abigail, may not be so inexplicable after all. I can't help thinking that maybe Abigail and Betty were
1: bald And they lived in a community where there was a lot of religious tension. It was a kind of pressure cooker situation. And Puritans were very strict in expecting children to be seen and not heard to behave themselves, to think the right thoughts. There was a lot of pressure to be a good child and especially a good girl child. And it must have been so boring for them, feeling miserable all the time, feeling frightened. I think we can understand quite easily what Abigail and Betty might possibly have been feeling in 1692. So I tend to think that some of this was to do perhaps with them just acting up a bit, Some of it was perhaps to do with religious pressures and maybe the real fear that there were people in their community who were trying to harm them, that the devil was out there, maybe he was trying to corrupt them. This is certainly what their elders told them. Um, Why shouldn't they have feared that? And then maybe on top of that, people around them, adults, taking this too seriously and things getting out of control, getting out of hand.
0: Clearly, this was a community under immense pressure. And understanding that helps to make sense of why Salem was such fertile ground for an explosion of anxiety in 1692. During the series, we've also spoken about a mix of factors that may help to explain why suspicion fell on certain people. Possibly gender, perhaps community tensions, maybe behaviour that didn't conform to the strict expectations of Puritan society. But as Marian Gibson explained, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to this. See, so I think
1: you have to look at a range of factors in each case. There isn't a, a lovely one-size-fits-all for witches. You know, this person is a witch because they're difficult. Yes, yeah, some of them are, but then on the other hand, this person is a witch because they're lovely. <laughs> How does that work? And the thing is about these, these witchcraft stories, no one theory ever explains everything. There's always an exception. So yeah, it's about women, but some men were accused. Yes, maybe it's about ergot poisoning, but surely the religious context is important too.
0: I don't think you can ever have a simple explanation for why people are accused of witchcraft. And according to Stacey Schiff, this mixed bag of motivations played out in accusations as well. I think that it's very hard for us to figure out who's telling,
4: who's recycling an old grudge, who's trying to explain why he can't find the kitchen scissors, who's trying to wreak revenge... On his neighbor for a long held, in several cases, um, generations long um, controversy, and who actually has just
0: basically been a victim of the power of suggestibility. But while all of these factors were undoubtedly significant in triggering the trials and helping them to escalate, I don't think that any of them adequately answer one key question why a witch trial? Why? Rather than just straightforward community infighting, did Salem believe itself to be afflicted by a supernatural evil? If there was one factor that all the experts I spoke to reiterated again and again, it was the strength and power of belief in witchcraft. And I think that's something that really lies at the heart of why the Salem witch trials happened. Tied into the Puritan mindset, these beliefs offered an outlet for community pressure and shaped the nature of accusations. Stories of unspeakable acts, a malign force working to destroy the community from within, and the looming threat of eternal damnation generated a raw fear that fueled the crisis forward. This allows us to see how apparently unexplainable events could make sense. Owen Davies.
2: If anything, Salem tells you it's it's about the intensity of the fear of witches. It's, a, it's about all the beliefs they associate, all the things and harmful things they do, all the misfortunes that can be explained on neighbors, and family members who you think want to do harm to you. Salem can sometimes be seen as a, a model of how an irrational set of beliefs leads to something horrific. And that is an old sort of 18th, 19th century view of witchcraft um, and of, of magic. And of popular belief, but when you put Salem in the context of the intellectual, social, cultural world—both elite, popular—however you want to, to put it—of the 17th century, then witchcraft made perfect sense. It was rational. I think this is really, really important point. Although it's dis- you know often described as hysteria, very problematic term in its own right, you know, or a craze, also problematic. It you know it's, it's not madness. This isn't insanity at all. It makes absolute cold, clear sense.
0: There are many places you could choose to end the Salem story. Maybe the final execution. Perhaps Governor Phipps dissolving the court of Oyer and Terminer. Or even Tituba, whose testimony set this whole thing alight, being released from prison and vanishing from the historical record. But I think it's even more interesting to remember that after this was all over, the community had to carry on go back to life as normal and come to terms with what had happened. Owen Davies and Stacey Schiff.
2: When that many people are executed, and on top of that, the amount of bitterness, the nastiness, the anger, the insinuations, the accusations... How does a community recover from that? And I find that, in one sense, more fascinating than the trial themselves. That's where, actually, less research gets done in witchcraft studies. And that's not just a matter of Salem, that's elsewhere. Um, Studies of witchcraft tend to end with the trial and execution, end of story.
4: Think about it. People have to go back to living with relatives who have accused them. So people go home to sit down to dinner to pray next to their accusers um, which is just a horrifying thought. People go back to homes where their mothers are, you know, are absent because they've accused their mothers. I mean, just the, the familial horror is,
0: is one piece of it. And of course, the community also had to live with the fact that several of those they'd accused never returned at all. And it's interesting to note that what happened wasn't just brushed under the carpet, but actually directly addressed. Owen Davies.
2: There was compensation paid out. There were apologies, and deliberate attempts to formally make apologies, rather than it being just something in private diaries. You know, there was a it, it was a formal source of, of cleansing of of what was considered to be a, a stain on the reputation um, of the town, and also, you know, of the colony as it then was as well. There is an awareness that Salem was an international story. I think this often gets forgotten. You know, Salem was reported widely. You know, within years, you know, a, a lot of books in a lot of countries which are interested in the, you know, the, the problem of witchcraft are mentioning Salem as one of the key iconic cases. And so there's also this recognition that our whole reputation as a, an emerging religious society is on trial here. So almost, it's, it's almost like a, a post trial trial on the reputation of, of Salem and this new colony
0: one of the apologies was much more personal. Remember Anne Putnam Jr., that 12-year-old star witness who brought claims against up to 62 people? Well, it seems that she later had misgivings about her role in events. Stacey Schiff again. She's the only one of the accusers of whom we have record later
4: of a, an apology of sorts. Early in the 18th century, when she, when she enters the church, when she goes to become a full church member, Um, and she will never marry, which is also interesting. Um, When Anne Putnam goes to become a full church member, she will submit an apology which so clearly aligns with another apology that does not seem to have been written by her, but she essentially will um, ask to be forgiven for the names she named, forgiven for the people she accused, and essentially write write all of her the error of her ways down to the fact that the
0: devil made her do it. But not everyone was so repentant. Take the young Boston minister, Cotton Mather. In October 1692, quick to capitalise on the sensation, Mather published his account of the trials, The Wonders of the Invisible World. As well as defending his own role in the trials, it reiterated how the devil had indeed been at work in Salem. And in private, Mather's lack of remorse was even more staunch. Schiff. The most chilling to me piece of this is how Cotton Mather will view
4: the trials after 19 people have hanged, well after the court has closed, well after the trials are behind them when everyone else would like to forget forget them. Um, He will privately, and not for any kind of publication, um, write that this has all actually been for the best because um, the epidemic had awakened souls, um, it had filled the pews, And um, it had done wonders for the church, but it had really not cost anyone anything, not paying any attention whatsoever to the 19 innocent lives that have been lost in the process or the families that have been torn apart. But it clearly
0: aligns with his religious agenda. And this brings us to one of the most interesting aspects of the aftermath of the trials. This wasn't some moment of awakening in which the scales fell from Salemites' eyes and they suddenly realized that they'd been wrong all along. In fact, the beliefs that underlined the witch trials endured. Stacy Schiff. The belief in witchcraft will survive the trials.
4: And I think that's something we tend to forget. Um, everyone's willing to believe that they have indeed um, condemned innocence, that they have indeed hanged innocence, but no one's willing entirely to let go of the idea of witchcraft for, for some time still. So the feeling is... There was witchcraft at work. Maybe we just overreacted. Maybe we just, you know, hanged the wrong people. But the fundamental belief
0: will endure. And according to Owen Davies, witchcraft beliefs didn't disappear in America after Salem. In fact, far from it.
2: And all those fears don't change just because the laws uh, against witchcraft are repealed, or you have the never-again Salem Brigade. Um, and in America, of course, the country's growing. It's growing and growing and growing. And you particularly, the, you know, the floodgates open when you get to the you know, second half of the 19th century, in particular. You know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people from across Europe, from across the globe, all bringing uh, their cultures, their beliefs with them. So, in one sense, you actually get a reinvigoration, if anything, of, of uh, witchcraft police and, and, and a, a very rich, you know, multicultural set of beliefs as well, of course, because Native Americans believe um, in witches as well, and Native Americans have their own purges of suspected witches in their society into the 19th century as well. And then, obviously, you have the, the African-American population as well. The 19th century America is extraordinarily rich in the diversity of witchcraft beliefs, but it's also rich, unfortunately, um, in terms of the number of, of people, mostly women, who are still abused, beaten up, and murdered and killed as witches right through into the mid-20th century. So Salem, yeah, an end point in one sense, psychologically and culturally and judicially, and in another sense, you can see it almost as the start point of a new era of witchcraft history in America. So by just focusing on Salem, I think sometimes distorts the more general Uh, sort of history and picture and understanding of how witchcraft beliefs are really ingrained in American society, just as they are ingrained in European society at the same period.
0: This takes us right back to the closest we're going to get for an explanation as to why the Salem witch trials happened. A fear of witchcraft that was both pervasive and enduring. Salem is written into the American story as the prime example of an unenlightened past. Long since put to rest, but Owen Davies argues that perhaps we shouldn't be so sure.
2: It does set in stone Salem as as a touch point to constantly refer back to, to times or a past that we must never return to. The American press will report on continuing witchcraft abuses going on in in Britain uh, and in Europe, and they will go look at old Europe, and you get it. It's just like that. Look at them; they're still abusing, beating up people, being still being killed for but look at us, we finished that, we stopped that back in Salem. Obviously, that's not the real story, but that's how it was often presented. If we better understood how Salem is, is in a sense, not a benchmark, if we need to move away and take those sort of rose-tinted glasses off, which tell us how we've progressed as a society, as humans, since that could possibly happen, well, then we're deluding ourselves. We're deluding ourselves because got plenty of evidence how, you know, people are being uh, accused and abused and murdered. Uh, we've got plenty of evidence of the ways in which rumour and scapegoating continue to take place. But it can be a bit pernicious to, to basically, let's study Salem because it tells us something about the past in American history. Yes, of course it does. But it can be self-satisfyingly or almost smug in the way in which um, that can never happen again. Well, I think it can happen again.
0: I wanted to end this series by taking us right back to where we started at the gallows with innocent people about to meet their deaths. I hope that by delving into the historical factors that led to the witch trials, we've helped to demystify the strange events that occurred in Salem that year, but also to humanize those involved. Whether accusers, prosecutors or suspected witches, They were all part of a community caught up in a potent outpouring of fear and belief. By making sense of the events that followed, we can see that what happened in Salem in 1692 is not a mystery, but a tragedy, and one that continues to resonate more than 300 years later. Thanks for listening to Salem Investigating the Witch Trials. It was made by the team behind BBC History Magazine and the History Extra podcast. Many thanks to my interviewees for this series, Professors Kathleen M. Brown, Owen Davies, Marion Gibson, Ronald Hutton, and Stacey Schiff. This series has been written, researched, and presented by me, Ellie Cawthorne, and produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. Fact-checking was by Josette Reeves. BBC History magazine editor is Rob Attar and our content director is David Musgrove. For a wealth of more history podcasts on a variety of subjects and for plenty more material on the history of witchcraft and all other the subjects, head to historyextra.com.